This is the Interfaith America podcast, and I'm Ibu Patel. You probably know him as Dwight Schrute on the acclaimed TV comedy series, The Office. But Rain Wilson is also the author of several books that explore spirituality. Most recently, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Rain is also one of the most high-profile Baha'is in the United States. The Baha'i faith has millions of members worldwide and encourages ideals like the oneness of humanity, the harmony of science and religion, and individual investigation of truth. Before we get into your book, Rain, I want to ask about the spirituality of Dwight Schrute. And is there a spirituality of Rain Wilson that animates whatever spirituality there might be in Dwight, Raccoon Hunter, and, and the variety of other things that Dwight did on, the, on that show? First of all, thanks for having me. So thrilled to be here, Ibu, and uh, love the work that you and the organization do. Happy, proud to be a part of it. It's really important work. It's very easy to focus on the differences of various faith traditions. And in the doing kind of create schisms and disunity between them. Uh, but by focusing on commonality, we can unite and do necessary work shoulder to shoulder, side by side with sleeves rolled up. And that's what you are all about. And I appreciate that so much. Uh, the spirituality of Dwight Schrute, I guess, you know, for me, being an artist is being part entertainer. People have tough lives, and if I can make them laugh and bring a little bit of joy, and as we all did on the cast of The Office, then that's a great service. Also, being an artist is emulating the divine. And I know this sounds kind of highfalutin, but it's true that there wasn't a character named Dwight Schrute before I played Dwight Schrute. Yeah, you're a creator. I'm a creator. I'm a fashioner. God is the fashioner. I think he's called in the Quran. The creation of art in the Baha'i tradition is the same as prayer. So being an artist, being of service, making people laugh, entertaining them, filling their lives with beauty is about as great a service as anyone can do. So somewhere around the middle of the book, you tell the story of having lunch with a writer friend, and you're talking about the positive role that religion plays in your life and the world. And this individual thinks you're speaking Swahili on Mars just does not understand, like thinks about religion as somewhere between irrelevant and evil. And when you say religion actually comes in part from the Latin root religare, which means to bind, and what religion at its best does is it binds people to one another, it kind of blows this person's mind. I'm sure you remember that scene because you wrote it and you lived it, but I'm curious if you could just reflect on that and how frequent of an experience that is for you as a committed person of faith, a Baha'i uh, in Hollywood. I put in a whole bunch of stories about conversations with people I have about both God and about religion. There's another story in there that I find even more relevant about God, which is this English director, his name was Roger Michel. He has since passed away. And he had a conversation. And he's like, when I was working with him in England, he's like, so Rain, you believe in God and spirituality and all that? And I was like, uh, yes, yes, I do. And he was like, well, I don't. I certainly don't. And I was like, oh, no, Roger, why is that? Well, 
Every day I was dragged to mass and I was had to clean up afterwards and pour the holy water and I had to mop the pews and I had to and I was dragged there four days a week and I had to sing and my parents made me go and blah 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 blah. So I could never believe in God. I just thought that was so funny and I, I encountered that story dozens of times a year of people that have been religiously traumatized in some way and then equate that with whether or not religion has any truth to it, any merit to it, whether God exists, whether the idea of some kind of divine energy force, cosmic love force, you know, pulsating through this universe and, and the multitude of other omniverses, <laughs> um, whether that has anything to do with how you were treated by a child or how your parents acted or so I'm skipping around a little bit, and I'm going to get to your question, I promise. But for me, too, part of my process of individuation in my 20s was I needed to reject the Baha'i faith of my parents, mm -hmm. because inherent in the Baha'i faith of my parents was a tremendous amount of hypocrisy and stuff that I really rebelled against. And I needed to kind of find my own relationship to Baha'u'llah to a higher power on my own, kind of separate from what my parents thought and believed. I think that's a process that doesn't happen very often, is people, you know, out of necessity, let's like set aside what and how I was raised by my culture, by my family, by my cul-de-sac, by my parents, by the people in my village or town, and let me come to my truth on my own, which is an important precept in the Baha'i faith. But going specifically to your question, now that I've danced around it, is one of the main theses, uh, that sounded dirty, of the, <laughs> of the book is that we have perhaps thrown the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater. We've jettisoned, by and large, and I say we, I'm talking, I'm speaking to you from like mostly secular blue state America right now. I don't know who's listening to this podcast. You could be in Mongolia or Bolivia. I'm not sure. But in secular blue state, uh, a liberal secular America, religion has been very much uh, rejected for a lot of really relevant reasons. And we've lost the essential, beautiful spiritual core of those religious beliefs. And a lot of people are still very reactive in their rejectionality, that's not a word, and are not able to see truth and beauty and purity at the heart of many uh, religious messages. You know, I, I'm one of, I'm probably one of a handful of people on planet Earth who has read more Rain Wilson words than has watched Rain Wilson shows, right? So I, lo <laughs> I love The Office, but I actually love The Bassoon King and Soul Boom more. And I was deeply taken by, by um, your coming back to the Baha'i faith when you were in your 20s in New York. And, you know, I'm a Chicagoan. I'm very familiar with New Trier, where you went to high school. And it's, uh, it's kind of academic intensity. And I was in high school in the 80s. I kind of know that story from a similar high school, Glenbart South, the academic intensity and what it meant to, you know, kind of be uh, the ducky character from the John Hughes movies, right? The kind of, <laughs> the kind of offbeat character who was into arts and theater and intellectual stuff. And then you move to New York, you go to acting school, you get involved in all kinds of like less than healthy things. And then one day you wake up and you're like, you know what? There's actually this like treasure I'm sitting on. 
which is the Baha'i faith that my parents taught me. It's actually the reason we moved to Chicago so that my dad could work at the Baha'i temple. And maybe there's something there that I should, I should be like living into. Do you, do you want to, do you want to say more about that? Sure. I've been quoting the great writer and thinker, Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way. And she has a quote somewhere, I don't even know where it is, that says, uh, I came to spirituality not out of virtue, but out of necessity. And I love that idea because that's very much true for me. When I jettisoned the Baha'i faith of my youth, and I just wanted to live a kind of wild bohemian lifestyle in New York City in the late 80s and through the 90s, I didn't want anything to do with the religion of my parents. I saw their hypocrisies. I saw the hypocrisy even in the Baha'i community. I didn't want morality hanging over my head. I wanted to have sex with my girlfriend and not feel guilty about it. I didn't want to think about God and more morality and mortality and the soul and being of service and building community and all of those aspects of, of the religious work that we do. I jettisoned all that. And for a while it worked and it was great. And I had a really nice and good life. And I was started to get work as an actor, which was beyond my wildest dreams. This dorky, ducky, suburban kid, you know, moving to the big city to be an actor. And I was actually finding some work. It wasn't paying me anything, but I was working. And I started to realize that I was really actually, in actuality, pretty miserable. When I look at it now, when I look back on it, I realize that this is uh, a lot to do with um, mental health issues. Uh, I was very anxious. I had a, a anxiety attacks. Uh, I was depressed. I dealt with addiction stuff. And because I had that foundation of growing up a high, of appreciating the sanctity and beauty and uh, truth of all of the world's great religions. I thought to myself, I felt to myself, I uh, kind of had a feeling in my gut that, hey, I might have lost something by jettisoning religion so wholeheartedly. And so I started to explore the faiths, the great faiths of the world, and I read many of the great holy books of the world's religions as I kind of, and this is a, a very long story, this is like a eight or 10 year story truncated into, you know, into uh, 17 sentences. But ultimately, I came back to the Baha'i faith. And I feel really grateful for those times because they got very dark. Uh, there was times I thought about suicide. There was uh, a lot of chaos and confusion. It didn't make any sense to me, Ibu, why I wasn't happy. Why was I not happy? I was living the life of my dreams. Yeah. I was being an actor. I was partying. I had great friends. I had a beautiful girlfriend who's now my wife. Everything was like hunky-dory. And I had this deep imbalance and chronic dissatisfaction going on inside. And I was fortunate enough to be able to kind of attune myself toward a spiritual path and a potential spiritual solution. I won't say that all of a sudden I went back in the Baha'i faith and I felt better and I got everything went away and it was amazing. No, it was part of a process, then part of a long process it involved therapy and uh, meditation and, you know, a lot of pondering and, and personal work along the way. But I'm really grateful for that experience. What you experienced as a young adult in New York, you highlight kind of the world is going through right now and particularly a generation is going through 
Gen Z, millennials, from the polarization crisis to the mental health crisis. And so in some ways you're saying, hey, listen, religion was a guide in a cell for me. And perhaps you should consider this. Yeah, I have a lot to say on that. Um, In some ways, my book is kind of a religion sandwich. They say that when you're giving a note to an actor, that you kind of give a note sandwich and the compliments are the bread. So it's kind of a funny joke that's on a lot of television sets. Like if a, a director is giving you a note, like let's say the director wants you to just do everything faster, right? After a take, the director will come in and be like, oh, Ibu, Ibu, great take. That was so funny when you did the thing. It was so great. I just, I'm loving what you're doing. This is great. Hey, on this take, maybe just try it faster and just try going through it faster. And then you end with the bread. Again, so great. What you're doing, just awesome. Really great. Really great. So in a way, my book, I did a little religion sandwich. So I talk about television. I talk about spirituality. I talk about death and big spiritual concepts. But really, the meat of the book is about religion. I have three chapters on religion itself. I talk about a trip to Jerusalem that I took, and if any listener is listening, and I don't care if you're a Zoroastrian or Hindu or indigenous American believer, everyone should go to Jerusalem if if able, because the idea that so much of world history is contained on the Temple Mount, which is the size of about like five soccer fields, is just preposterous and mind-blowing. Uh, it's, it's incredible the, from the Wailing Wall to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher and, uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and everything in between the Via Dolorosa. It's all, it's all right there. And it's all a couple of Frisbee throws away from each other. And to me, it really illuminated and highlighted a lot of issues around religion and also a lot of beauty around religion. And then I get into the, like I mentioned before, the 10 universals of all religious faith. What do all religious faith hold in common? People don't really talk about that. They'll say like, well, Hinduism is polytheistic, which kind of true. It's not exactly true. It's not how I would, what do I know? But it's not how I would interpret it. I think there's many different quote unquote polyistic faiths are knowing one spiritual reality through a number of different faces and a number of different facets. But some of these elements are some sense of a higher power, uh, life after death, the power of prayer, uh, the building of community, the search for transcendence, the force of love, service to the poor, and finally, a strong sense of purpose. And these were 10 random ones that came to me. I'm sure you could find another, easily another five or 10 or 20 or yeah, more. They're, they're not quite random, right? I mean, I mean, they came out of your mind, but the interesting thing is like you read anybody from Mircea Eliade to the Dalai Lama and the lists are very similar, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the common aspects of across religious traditions. Absolutely. And then I, and then I, what I do is I propose to build a new religion. And I, and I did this kind of in a tongue in cheek way. I proposed soul boom, the religion. Because I just wanted young people to be thinking about religion in a new way. Like, hey, there's so many positive aspects. Let's, t- let's pick and choose stuff that we like from various faith traditions and put it in one, you know, jambalaya, one potpourri, you know, one stew. So I have a bunch of uh, ideas around that. And then I do bring up uh, quite a bit about the idea of, of religion being a force for good. What we 
need in the world right now can be found, as crazy as this sounds, in religion. And like you said, for so many people, religion is the problem, not the solution. But there actually is a great deal of solution to be found in a religion. And I'm not proposing anyone go join any specific religion. That's not what I'm talking about. But when you look at community, purpose, service to the poor, transcendence, prayer and meditation, a higher power, this is what contemporary Western society is losing. And those are the things, those universals are what we need as a species right now. Totally. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, you'll see that I have a quibble with Rain's call for a spiritual revolution. By the way, if you're enjoying this conversation, you ought to check out my new book, We Need to Build Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. It's a guide for those who want to make positive social change and an invitation into the next chapter of American religion a chapter I'm calling Interfaith America. We Need to Build is published by Beacon Press and available wherever you buy books. Now, back to the podcast. So, Rain, you write about the need for a spiritual revolution in Soul Boom. But as I'm reading your book, I'm realizing that what you're really describing is not so much a revolution but what I call a more beautiful social order. As you know, most revolutions don't produce peaceful, magnanimous leaders like Nelson Mandela. They produce violent dictators like the Ayatollah Khomeini. I'm curious, Rain, would you consider thinking about the work of awakened spirituality as building a more beautiful social order instead of advancing a revolution? Yeah, I think that from a Marxist perspective, Revolution is necessary, it's based on economics, it's violent, and it usually in actuality ends in uh, some kind of authoritarianism. You're right. And that's a really good way of putting it. And in, in essence, I agree with you. I don't know that I'm going to get people to read the book yeah, right. if I'm saying why we need a, spirit, a new spiritual, peaceful social order. Um, because we're working towards the same thing. But the point, the larger point that I'm making is, and in a way, you could kind of say the civil rights movement was a civil rights revolution because we went from Jim Crow in the late 40s with mass lynchings to the civil rights movement and voting rights bill and the banning of Jim Crow and busing and, and, and all of that in a, in a very short amount of time, 15, 16 years. It was, a, it was a civil rights revolution. Did we fix racism? Absolutely not. No, not even close. But if you compare the world from 1948 to 1965, it's pretty astonishing what happened to the work of all of the folks that worked uh, on that revolution. So the reason I use the word revolution really has to do with the idea that is my ultimate thesis of the book, which is that the systems that we currently have are broken. They're corrupt and broken at their core. And if we continue as a society to tweak them and add band-aids, 
Things are never going to get better. They are going to continue to unravel and they are unsustainable. The list goes on and on. I list all the broken systems of the world. Here's, here's an example. Healthcare. Healthcare in the United States is based on profit. Right now, you have these hedge funds and investment funds buying doctor's offices. This was just in the New York Times a couple days ago. Buying hospital systems, doctor's offices, and medical co-ops and stuff, redlining them, going through and seeing what's profitable and what's not, shutting down the ones that aren't profitable, trying to maximize profit on the ones that are. The ones that are shut down are usually in the poorer neighborhoods. But again, our whole, the whole system of healthcare is based on profit. So you can't just pass a law saying, oh, no more hedge funds are allowed to buy doctor's offices. There will just be some other way that this corrupt system uses healthcare to try and make money for the haves and take it away from the have-nots. I'm not even suggesting some kind of Marxist socialism. What I'm suggesting is a complete and total reevaluation of what a healthcare system is there for. It's there to heal the sick and to do it in an effective way. And that's what's important. It's the compassion for the poor and the sick and to provide healing and not profit. So we in America talk about fixing the healthcare system, a universal healthcare system, more government mandated healthcare, you know, this and that and cooperative healthcare, et cetera, and, you know, uh, passing some bills on the big pharmaceutical companies. But we're not having a conversation about, like, what's the purpose of healthcare? Right, right. What's the orientation behind it? And, it's, and what is the spiritual and philosophical underpinnings and foundationality of what a healthcare system should do? So a revolution is kind of saying, Let's stop trying to throw band-aids on something like healthcare. And you could go on to education, you can go on to the military nationalism, any agriculture, climate change really is an issue that is a, that is a spiritual issue as much as anything else. It's not a, just about limiting CO2 and, you know, having lighter airplanes or something like that. That's that's part of it and it's a valuable small part of it, but it really is a whole cloth reevaluation. So to, to me, the idea of a revolution is to inspire young folks, office fans to think about spiritual tools in an entirely new way as not some kind of like namby-pamby, loving little get together where you share a Hindu prayer and I share a Baha'i prayer and we hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But like we can take these spiritual ideas and we can transform ourselves and we can and need to transform society. I totally get that. It's it's a it's a shift in paradigm and orientation. And and out of that shift in paradigm, you know, there's a great quote by Emerson. It's something along the lines of the idea of a civilization carries us a, a train of cities and institutions in its wake. Right. And you're basically saying, listen, our orientation cannot just be pleasure and profit. There are other purposes in life, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the as the orientation shifts. You get new systems and institutions. And incidentally, this is one of the things I love about religion, right? So I'll use a, the specific example of the Mayo Clinic. The Mayo Clinic was founded uh, as an interfaith partnership between an agnostic family of doctors, the Mayo family, and the Sisters of St. Francis, Catholic Sisters, in Rochester, New York, as precisely on what you're saying, Rain, which is healthcare should not be about profit. It should be about the healing of the whole human being. And it should be at the highest quality all the time. You should not be paying for ad hoc services. You should be treated by a team of expert 
healthcare practitioners with a spiritual orientation, again, sisters of St. Francis, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. who are looking at the whole self, you know, and it's not just an idea, it's an actual institution. And it's one of the things I love about religion is that it builds institutions. You know, I loved the chapter on pilgrimage so much, Rain, and I'll tell you why. Because you, well, you have that kind of hilarious beginning of Lambeau Field, you know, and and I'm a Chicagoan. You were, you grew up in Chicago, so so you mm-hmm. you knew how that was going to feel to a Chicagoan, right? Who might think of Soldier Field as as a pilgrimage site, <laughs> but but then then you go to the pilgrimage site of the Baha'i faith and how the sacredness, the beauty, the energy you and your family felt being there, and then you widen the lens and you're like, hey, listen. There are pilgrimage sites for all religions. And by the way, there are religions which view every inch of earth as a pilgrimage site. And so what I love about that is it's a little bit like small C Catholic and large C Catholics. Large C Catholic is fidelity to a particular path, belief in a particular church. Small C Catholic is universal. And you're kind of doing the same thing here. You're like, I'm a large B Baha'i. I believe in this path and I I have fidelity to its teachings. And I recognize the beauty and holiness and spirituality of a range of paths. And what I'm really interested in is the illumination of all of that and the cooperation between those. And you quote from the Japanese haku master, Basho, and his pilgrimage process, right? Mm. What, what did it feel like to write that chapter? Because reading it felt like a pilgrimage in itself. Well, I just happened to have that section open here. And I'd love to read a little bit from Please, the book. And yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad you underlined that because that's a very special chapter for me when I went on a Baha'i holy pilgrimage to the Baha'i holy land in Haifa, Israel. It was a transformative experience and deeply, deeply moving. And I really wrestled with and struggled with coming back to Los Angeles and finding little to no sacredness or holiness in my daily life and routine. And I thought, this is not how it should be. So I started excavating this idea of sacred pilgrimages, sacredness and holiness. And I brought up Basho. And I say from the book, roughly 300 years ago, there was another pilgrim, Basho, the famous poet from Japan. Some consider him the greatest author of haiku in history. In his moving, sumptuous work, The Narrow Road to the Interior, Basho wandered on foot hundreds of miles into various sacred temples and sites around medieval Japan in a state of spiritual and artistic contemplation. He famously said, Real poetry is to lead a beautiful life. To live poetry is better than to write it. He also said, The journey itself is my home. And what was his journey? He walked for dozens of miles every day on his poetic pilgrimage journaling, noticing the specific details of the beauty of the natural world around him, the changes of the seasons, and the sound of the breeze and the cottonwood trees. His day would end at a holy place, a crossing, a bridge, a harbor, a gravesite, a temple, or a monastery, and then Basho would begin his craft. He would compose a poem based on his travels, inspired by his personal life, wisdom, and experience, informed by his, quote, observations on the trail and in the forest, and devoted specifically to the sacred spot he was visiting on that particular day. He would then leave the poem behind him as an offering, a gift, 
For Basho, as with many Native Americans, there was no delineation between what was holy, what was of nature, what was of art, and what was of religion. He wrote, The temple bell stops, but I still hear the sound coming out of the flowers. Words like that could have easily been spoken by Black Elk or Luther Standing Bear. Nature, poetry, shrines, pilgrimages, God, art, spirituality, life. It's all part of the circle of the sacred and profound in the universe of Basho. Thich Nhat Hanh said, in the sunlight of awareness, everything becomes sacred. Uh, and, and I'm glad you highlighted that section because that's the life I want. That's the life I want for myself, for my son, Walter, for my wife. Uh, for my community, for all of us Americans, for all of us humans on the earth. We're all on a journey. There's an integration between art, service, life, nature, spirituality, and religion. It's all integrated seamlessly where, because it is all divine. It is all seeking transcendence. How do we find that in our lives? How do we put that in our lives? Obviously, what is sacred is not necessarily a shrine. It can be an act. It can be Abdu'l-Baha, the son of the prophet, founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, says, strive day by day that your actions may be beautiful prayers. And I, I, I love that idea that my actions are beautiful prayers and the connection between nature and sacred and holiness. And I don't provide any answers. I just think it's a conversation that we could all be having. And I would urge all of those hundreds or, or thousands of kids in these colleges doing, doing your work in Interfaith America to have that discussion about how do we find the sacred, nurture the sacred, what is sacred, what is holy? How do we bring that into the fore in, in the modern world? Thank you, Rain. I'm going to ask you one last question, which is kind of a bookend to where we began. Mm. So we began with, the skepticism that folks in much of blue America, particularly Hollywood, have with, with regards to religion. It's, uh, you know the bad more than you know the good. Mm-hmm. So part of the theme of season two for the Interfaith America podcast is exploring religion and interfaith across sectors. So let's, we began with the problem, which is skepticism and kind of leading with the bad. Let's end with the, with the solution. What is a day where there are a dozen two dozen, three dozen major movies a year or a couple dozen major high-level TV series a year on a Netflix or an Amazon Prime that take the theme that you just spoke about. Uh, your actions are beautiful prayers. Uh, Basho traveling and seeing the holiness in everything, even while being anchored in his own. Can you see a day where where Hollywood script writers and actors are really living into that and kind of leading this revolution of orientation uh, of which spirit is the new anchor and not profit? Um, no. (laughs) Come on, let's dream a little here. (laughs) Well, here's the problem. Going back to one of the broken systems, and I don't, I will, I'm not going to end in a downer, I promise you. Okay. But going back to the broken systems, one of the most, the most broken system in contemporary America is our partisan political system. And what's happened is because so many fundamentalists have used fundamentalist thought and judgment as a kind of a weapon 
on a number of social issues, then the liberal part of America has reacted to that and uh, equated evangelicalism, fundamentalism with religion, and then equated then religion with reactionary right-wing policy, right? I'm not going to get into a whole political debate about it, but that's just what happened. So everything has become politicized. COVID became politicized, right? It just, the list goes on and on. Guns are politicized. So I think some more work needs to be done by folks in Hollywood to understand that religion and even like healthy fundamentalism, which I would call like orthodoxy, isn't necessarily something that has to be harnessed and used as a political uh, weapon. And so there has to be a little bit more healthy skepticism and dismantling of the uh, American partisan political system before we go there. That being said, I think that voices of moderate Hollywood need to speak up a little bit more. I recently tweeted about a show, The Last of Us, where there was a Christian minister giving a uh, sermon in this post-apocalyptic landscape. And immediately I was like, oh, he's evil. And not only that, not only was he evil, he was a cannibalistic pedophile. <laughs> he was like as evil as you can get. And I knew it in half a second because I know Hollywood and I know that if they're going to set up a preacher at the beginning that he's going to be evil. And I tweeted about it and I caught a big backlash from the political left and I was really put on a pedestal by the political right even though the political right had just been uh, attacking me a month previous for, you know, speaking out about climate change. <laughs> and so, but so many people called and thanked me in Hollywood, Christians in Hollywood and moderates in Hollywood. Like, thank you for saying that. And, and, and they, didn't, they didn't speak up. And it, it was interesting. I said to so many Christian friends might like, why do you say something? Yeah, why do right. you leave it to the Baha'i? <laughs> why is it up to the Baha'i to defend the Christians in Hollywood? What are you doing? Uh, ultimately, I believe that, and, and my experience is, and let's just take the office. Most of the people in the office were churchgoers, beautiful Christians, loving hearts, want to make the world a better place, want to find peace, grace, want to serve others. They don't trumpet that. Uh, they don't lead with that, but that's that's the reality. And I, I hope that those voices will speak out about just telling stories with people having spiritual struggle, people who have a beautiful faith and uh, and want to, you know, do the right thing and 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 serve others and love other people. And I, I, I truly hope that those voices will start to rise and tell those stories because. That's the reality of America today. Most religious people are kind, good-natured, good-hearted people that just want the world to be a better place and want to bring increased love to the world. And that, Rain Wilson, is the perfect place to leave this podcast. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for being so generous to offer some of that spirit with me and the team of the Interfaith America podcast today. Thank you, Ibu. Thanks, everyone over there. And... Um, Bless you all. I love it. So happy to be a part of it. So now I ask, how will you, like our friend Rain Wilson, connect your particular faith or spirituality to the work of building a healthy pluralism where everyone's faith and spirituality can flourish? 
to read more about this conversation and to find resources and stories about bridge building in our religiously diverse democracy, visit our website, www.interfaithamerica.org. I'm Ibu Patel. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel was launched by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is a production by Interfaith America and Philos Future Media. I'm your host, Ibu Patel. The Interfaith America team is Silma Suba, executive producer, Terry Simon, coordinating producer, Ali Vrogop, researcher, Warwick Sabin, editorial support, Johanna Zorn, editorial consultant, Christina Vieira, creative director, Brandon Robertson, social media manager, Catherine O'Brien, marketing manager, Vanessa Young, production assistant. Production by Philos Future Media Team, Keisha TK Dutes, executive producer, Manny Faces, producer and audio editor. Share this show with a friend and rate, follow, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Find more resources on religious diversity, racial equity, bridging and belonging, Dean and dunya, faith and world at www.interfaithamerica.org.